And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. And while we both love lots of RPGs, D&D is our comfort food. And what is the internet if not about sharing pictures of your meals? For anyone that hasn't seen quite as many decades of D&D as we have, Thacko stands for two-hit armor class zero, which first appeared in the AD&D first edition DMG for monsters, and it became standard for players in the 1985 basic box set as well as AD&D second edition. Instead of getting a bonus to hit, armor class descended, so the negative numbers were better. That means that you would add your target's armor class to your D20 roll to see if you hit your Thacko. This rule was likely created by math teachers to promote our ability to do algebra. <laughs> it's awful. It was really awful. <laughs> so hi, I'm Ange. And I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since about 2017. And then in 2021, John gave me the head gnome title. So I'm in charge of Gnome Stew. And I am Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I have been gaming since roughly 1985. Um, in addition to doing uh, the reviews that I do on Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com. Uh, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. And I think I've been at the stew uh, about as long as you've been doing the Gnomecast. Yeah, yeah, I think that's about right. And Jared writes so many reviews, he doesn't want to put all of them on the Gnome Stew, so <laughs> he has to have his own website to put some of them on. I need overflow. All right, so this is our first episode, and I thought we'd give you our D&D origin stories along with some of our thoughts on the current state of the game. Before we dive into the Dungeon Master's Workshop, which is our main topic, we're going to visit our campaign journals, where we talk about the D&D games we're currently running. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. Now, the game I'm currently running is an Eberron game that I'm calling The Depths of Zendrick. Our most recent session was the start of the ocean journey between Sharn and Stormreach. Because I can't do anything simple, this game had to start in Sharn with them competing for a spot on the expedition <laughs> that was going to Zendrick. So we're like... We're like five or six sessions in, and they're not even in Zendrick yet. Now, I did discover with this most recent session that it's really hard to run a travel montage and still feel like you're giving your players agency. <laughs> when I started that session, there were quite a few blank faces staring at me for the first part is I'm like, you know, you arrive at the docks. This is what the smells are. These are what the sounds are. This is what you see the people doing. And then I pause in silence. <laughs> okay and then i move on and like just keep describing stuff and first of all as i said i it's way more complicated than i needed to be and there are a lot of npcs involved there's the npcs that are in charge of the expedition there's the other adventurers that were were chosen to go on this expedition and then there's also the ship's crew i was at least smart with that and only detailed like the four main crew members the captain his first mate the bosun and the cook uh and then the rest of the crew are all generic they're sailors <laughs> the last half of the session went pretty well because i had the the ship caught in a dead calm which was surrounded by a creepy fog and then a few days later food stores were going missing and then a sailor went missing so the pcs kind of volunteered to search and then they discovered the monsters that had been planted on the ship during the fog and were now hatching and a very aliens type of scene so i was very happy when one of my players was like we're all gonna die man <laughs> the next session should be a little easier and hopefully wrap up the ocean journey and get them actually to storm reach so i have a question yeah when it comes to that travel montage do you have the kind of players that if you had asked them what is one thing that you had to do in the course of this trip 
that they would take a prompt like that and run with it. Some yes, some no. You know, I was trying to do some things like it took like a day for the ship to get out of the harbor and the river and into the actual ocean. And that was when I had everyone do con saves to see who was going to have to deal with seasickness. <laughs> half of the players did fine. And the other half of those, those three that failed, the highest roll was a total of five. <laughs> those three had to deal with basically being stuck in their bunk mm -hmm. for the first week, dealing with the fact that being on a ship sucks. <laughs> I was trying to do some of that mm -hmm. and give them a little, you know, other stuff to do. It didn't go as smooth as I wanted. Mm -hmm. I've had that happen too, where, okay, this isn't going bad, but I need to move on from it before it stalls out. Right. I did have one of the players, I asked him, you know, like what, because he was the one that aced his con save. He got like a 22 or something like that. And of course, he's the goblin artificer. <laughs> and I asked him what he was going to be up to. And he decided that he was going to start making his way around the ship and see if anything needed to be improved. <laughs> and we settled on that there were some improvements that could be made in the galley to make the, uh, the stove a little safer. We had to role play him convincing the ship's cook to let him mess with their stove and all of that <laughs> stuff, which was that was that was fun. I liked it. So tell me about your campaign, Jared. Well, I mean, I probably don't have to tell you about that much of it because <laughs> uh, you are part of it. Currently, I'm running a game that I like to call the Chronicles of the Marodi. And it is set in Kobold Press's Midgard setting. The main crux of it is all of my people are working as agents of one of the dragons that rules the Marodi Empire. Whose name I can never pronounce properly. Yurazaza. Uh-huh. What was really funny, uh, this isn't what happened uh, in the most recent session, but it is something that happened early on, is one of our characters, despite the fact that they were supposed to be somewhat undercover as agents of Yurazaza just like basically started flaunting that <laughs> they worked for the uh, dragon that runs this part of the empire. <laughs> oh goodness. But um, most recently they've been charged with going to this prison and finding out what was happening. The number of prisoners getting sent there was uh, going up and this fortress was no longer under the control of Yurazaza, even though it's within her territory and she wanted her agents to go into this uh, prison and find out what was going on there. And the player characters found that the uh, folk of Lang had been contracted to uh, make silk out of really horrifying uh, silk worms that they had mutated. And they were taking the prisoners and also mutating the prisoners to work on the silk worms. So the player characters found some of these people that had not yet been fully transformed and they wanted to save them. They found a sea cave that they could escape through without going through all the guards on the first level. And they also found a third level to the dungeon, which was not actually on this plane of existence, which is where we started off. And that's where they found out that the folk of Lang were also designing these cursed weapons for someone in the Empire. And they decided to um, shut things down by freeing a bunch of spiders of Lang that the folk of Lang were uh, experimenting on, which quickly skittered through that level and ate up most of the uh, folk of Lang that were down there. And the first thing that we got to do was I had them using the uh, DMG rules for deciphering an alien device to mess with the machine that was keeping this layer anchored to the prime material plane. 
And one thing I noticed when using those rules is if you use those rules and you don't give someone a consequence on a failure, it's just a matter of people rolling until they get it figured out. So I ended up adding in that whenever there was a failure, something on the machine malfunctioned. And I believe, and you almost blinked out of existence there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I was able to make my save and not blink out of existence. But <laughs> I, uh, I very much stopped trying to do my intelligence checks to help on that one. <laughs> but yes, um, so we did use um, some alternate rules that don't get used very often in a DMG. But as I said, it's like fourth edition skill challenges. Like if you're just rolling until you succeed, it doesn't feel like it means much. So there has to be kind of that chance to either break the machine or to harm the people working on this. It might work if there's a time crunch, but you really have to add something else in it other than just you have to make four checks to figure out how this thing works. Yeah. And I think as a GM, you have to be able to force input the narrative flair. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like your players will get into it eventually, but you got to encourage narrating the story part of the skill challenge. Yeah. And I mean, you can tell me how well I did. I was trying to like throw in things like when people would make a check, how they were starting to understand the symbols and like these symbols are the numbers. And, you know, you can't necessarily read things, but you're getting an idea of what symbols change when you, you know, pull certain levers and things like that. I just know the last session was a bad day for Kazina. <laughs> it was. You almost got zapped into oblivion. They did fight a void ooze that could have swallowed people and basically drawn them into a singularity that was in the middle of the ooze. But thankfully, they dispatched the ooze pretty quickly. But then once they figured out the machine and they set that level of the dungeon to drift back into the void, they went back upstairs and they got all the prisoners free and they start leading them out the sea cave before it gets completely flooded. And that's when the walled horror came out. And the walled horror is one of the kobold press monsters. I don't remember. I think it's from the Tome of Beast 2. I could be wrong. But the Wald Horror is basically an undead creature, and it forms whenever bodies have been buried behind a wall, and it manifests as these arms that start reaching out from the wall. And if they grapple someone, they can start to entomb them within the wall. And Ange's character, as well as uh, one of the other uh, players, had their characters entombed in the wall at different points during this fight. No, no, let, let's point out a fact. The walled horror is immune to psychic damage. Yeah. So what kind of rogue <laughs> am I playing, Jared? The kind of rogue that does psychic damage. So now, not, not only <laughs> did I start being sucked into the wall, I couldn't hurt it. Well, I mean, thankfully, you could use mundane weapons to hurt it a little bit. But yes, when you first attacked it, not knowing it was resistant to uh, psychic damage, that, that was a little bit of a surprise there for Kazina. <laughs> but it may just be me. I really loved the visuals of the wall and the arms coming out and basically grabbing anybody that was trying to escape the sea cave. I really liked the reaction that all of you had when it was destroyed and the wall crumbled and you saw all of the people that perished from the experiment that didn't manage to turn into uh, gas of Lang, but also survive. Because all of a sudden it was like, oh, I am so glad we killed all of those people. <laughs> no, no. As, as much as it was a very, very bad day for Kazina, it was really cool. I can appreciate that as a player. <laughs> and then um, we wrapped up. They got everyone out of the sea cave. They had them travel up the hillside. And then they all got to ride on uh, war wyverns. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. And that's where we wrapped up the session. So we only did about a two hour session this last time. 
usually we don't go too much longer than that. We usually do like about three hour sessions. So it was a little truncated, but we have also been having one hell of a time getting our sessions scheduled and actually having uh, everybody available at the same time. Life has not been cooperative. It has not. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because a couple of those times it was me, but it was just it's just been rough these last couple of months just trying to get any time in to play this game. I mean, in part, that's summer in general. I mean, it's <laughs> the, the summer holidays. You end up yeah. with scheduling issues. So for what, half the year? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, then, you know, the holidays come up in December and then. But um, one of the things I was going to bring up that is interesting playing online is that we still had a player that couldn't make it this time and we missed him, but we could assign his player to somebody else. And I've noticed like there are times when playing face to face, like if somebody doesn't show up, they may have their character sheet. So you don't have their character. So there's no way to use that character. Even when people have someone else's character sheet, sometimes it feels awkward. And for some reason, it feels different to just be able to assign that character to someone else in Roll20 and let them use those resources to contribute. I think part of it is because the character sheet is tracking, you know, how many spells you've used and things like that. So if that person left off, you know, with most of their spells gone, you still know where they're at. And, you know, you still are tracking those resources and things like that. No, I do think that's 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 with a VTT that has a good character sheet. Yes. You know, for folks who are just playing over Zoom, Theater of the Mind, that's not so much an issue because if you don't have their PDF or their printed sheet in front of you, you're still in the same boat you would be if the person didn't show up to a face-to-face game. We ran into, with Astral, rest in peace, VTT uh, <laughs> that is being shut down this week, I believe. I believe today was actually their last day really bad character sheet just yeah awful so most of us only filled in like certain things on the character sheet and in that particular game which i'm a player we had a player who chris likes multi multi-classing <laughs> uh and uh his character is like two levels of monk two levels of bard two levels of sorcerer two levels of warlock <laughs> something obnoxious along those lines and oh, goodness the last time we played, he wasn't able to be there. And it was just like, I have no idea what it, I'm just going to push this button on his character sheet and see what happens. <laughs> you know what? That would actually be fun on a, uh, on a VTT to have this random action. Just, <laughs> just have this character take a random action. I'm not responsible for whatever happens. <laughs> oh goodness. So moving into our main segment, our dungeon masters workshop. Just as every character has an origin story, so too does every gamer. And we thought we'd cover our origin stories for this inaugural episode of the show. So the very first question is, of course, how did you get into D&D? Well, in my case, I stole my sister's magenta basic set, which I believe was the 1981 basic set. I had no idea what to do with it. So at one point in time after failing to run a couple sessions and doing things like thinking that hit dice was the number of times you could hit a monster instead of uh, <laughs> the dice that you rolled for them to have hit points. We watched one of my friend's brothers play AD&D and boy, did we get a lot of toxic advice when, <laughs> when we sat in on that session. Like it's the 80s or something. Oh my gosh. We were hearing things like, yeah. And even when they get enough XP, you can tell them that they have to jump through all of these hoops before someone will train them. And you could, you know, make them go like five or six sessions before they even get the level up and they don't get any more experience points until then. And I'm sitting here going like, oh, is that is that how this is supposed to work? I OK. 
thankfully, when I really like sat down and read through the basic set, both the basic sets in the 80s were much nicer uh, about presenting how D&D should be played than uh, the AD&D books for first edition. And eventually I ran an adventure for my friends. And this is going to be ironic because I just said that, you know, I learned how to be nicer. But I started them off with first level characters shipwrecked on an island with a vampire. And they had no chance to really hurt the vampire. The entire game was just like running around the island, trying to survive the wildlife and staying ahead of the vampire until the sun came up. I mean, that's kind of an interesting scenario, but I don't know that I'd actually say it was like an interesting D&D scenario, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know. I don't know what I like my entire career in D&D. I have been I have these moments where I get more ambitious than the game system. And I have to say, I think I started. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the first real scenario that I ran doing that. <laughs> so, and what about your origin story with D&D? So at the beginning of my senior year of high school, a friend brought a new kid to our lunch table. Now, like I said, this is our senior year. New kids starting senior year with us. That was, that was unusual. So Tom stood out. And when she brought him to our table, because they were in a class together and he didn't know anybody, she brought him to our lunch table. He saw me sitting there reading a big fat fantasy paperback novel. I have no idea what I was reading at the time, but it was still a giant book with some dragon on the cover, probably. <laughs> he immediately started talking to me about stuff, and eventually he asked me if I wanted to play D&D. I said yes, <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> so how often did you play when you first started up? I don't remember if we played... Every week, every Saturday or every other Saturday, it's really all very nebulous me now. It's like I can still like the feeling of his aunt and uncle's dining room (laughs) with the wood burning stove and the smell of the house and just the layout. That's all still very fresh in my brain. But I could not tell you the name of anyone we gamed with other than Tom (laughs) and his best friend, Tom, who was a jerk. (laughs) Actually, that's not true. I also remember Jim. Jim was also a jerk, but that was <laughs> later. He was not part of the initial group. But I, I remember some of it, but not a whole lot. <laughs> it was very long ago. I do remember, this is probably a neat little tidbit to share. Tom had his license, but he didn't have a car license. He had a motorcycle license. <laughs> so on that very first Saturday that we gamed, Tom showed up to my house on a motorcycle with a spare helmet to drive me to his aunt and uncle's to play the game. Now, mind you, I was a very awkward, nerdy teenager. (laughs) I had never gone on dates before. I never went to any of my proms, nothing like that. So here, my parents are watching this boy pull up on a motorcycle and watch me drive off with him. (laughs) All I'm going to say is, I know you haven't watched the last season of Stranger Things and you really need to. Because this is making me think of that. <laughs> I really need to. So, Jared, what was your first character you played, or your first character you remember playing? The very first character that I actually played was Derek, who was a ranger. And I have no <laughs> idea why I named him Derek. I had other NPCs that I ran as, like, fill-in DM PCs, where, like, if, if we didn't have enough people, I would run them. Or if somebody was playing at the table that wasn't usually in our group. I would hand them to them and let them play them. I made up a cleric named Dave and a thief named Gary. So you can see how my naming conventions were inspired at that point in time. I totally didn't just look at the rule book 
<laughs> come up with names for people. Now you GM'd most of the time oh, back yeah. then, so you didn't have as many PCs that were yours, so to speak. We played um, basic for like a year or so, and then we transitioned to AD and D. And once we started playing AD and D, my friend started running a Greyhawk game, and that's when I started playing Derek. And I love Rangers. I, I would just, I love the concept of Rangers. They're like my favorite character class, even when the mechanics don't make me as happy as they could be. <laughs> and I would like to say that along with our theme of being old enough to remember Thacko, I would also point out that this is back when the idea of a ranger was Aragorn. There was yep. no Drist yet. <laughs> he was on the horizon, but he wasn't yes. there yet. Yes. There were rules for uh, drow PCs and Unearth Arcana, but no Drist yet. So Derek <laughs> was a guy that had a bastard sword and he had full plate armor. And I was so sad because when we transitioned to AD&D second edition, I lost my plate armor because Rangers couldn't wear plate armor anymore in second edition. <laughs> trying to think, did second edition come out after Icewind Dale? Yeah. Crystal Shard came out in, I think it was the year after the gray box that came out. And then the year after that is when second edition, because it was um, Forgotten Realms launched in 1987 and second edition started in 1989. For those of you who were not gaming back in those days, I do want to add a comment that there are two characters that caused many GMs in the 80s to just <laughs> sigh and roll their eyes. And those two characters were Drist and Raceland. Yep. Because if you had a socially awkward player who didn't know how to do social but wanted to be awesome, they wanted to play Drist or they wanted to play Raceland. <laughs> I need to be a Drow Ranger or I need to be the most misanthropic wizard that you have ever seen. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I mean, I got Derek up to about 13th level. I killed dragons and giants with him. I was very, very pleased that I got that character up to that level, especially since my friend didn't run as often as I did. We were ridiculous, though, at that point in time, because especially in the summer, we would play like almost every night. Saturday, we would probably play from like the time we woke up until like one o'clock in the morning. So it was it was ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah. And what was your first character that you remember? So the very first character I played was a halfling thief. I have no idea what his name was, and he wasn't actually my character. <laughs> he belonged to a player that didn't show up for that game that I showed up to for my first time ever. I do remember that he survived a TPK, kind of, sort of. Basically, when it was obvious that the fight was going south, and the GM asked me what I was doing. I'm like, I hide under the pile of bodies. <laughs> and it was left kind of vague whether or not that halfling thief was able to make it back out <laughs> of that dungeon once things calmed down. I mean, it's a prudent move, though. <laughs> I, I think that's I think that was kind of something that impressed Tom. When you know he because he was my very first jam, I think it impressed him that, like, oh, okay, th this one's gonna be she's worth keeping around. <laughs> and the very first character I made of my own was Jasmina Tavalar, a thief mage. I'm pretty sure she was human, though she might have been half elf. She absolutely was not an elf, though, because that other Tom who I mentioned was a jerk, he was a bit of a gatekeeper when it came to elves, and only he was allowed to play elves. Because only he could properly give them 
the gravitas and alien nature that they truly needed to be played in a D&D game. Why did we play with some of the people that we played with? <laughs> Dear listener, if you are of an age where you weren't playing at this point in time, I can't explain some of the people that we, we played with because we thought if we were ever going to have a decent game, we had to play with whoever was available and interested in D&D. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of people back in the 80s, it really was the people, you know, the people physically around you, closest to you. It's like there was none of this online stuff. My buddy Doug, he found gamers through a game store that happened to be in his neighborhood. I played with the people that Tom found. And thankfully, Bad Tom didn't stick around for too long. There were things that came between them eventually, but I believe they had started drifting apart towards the end of our senior year anyway. And then other people were in the game group who were more fun and more consistent to play with. There was a girl we played with that I can picture her in my head, cannot remember her name, and it drives me nuts. <laughs> anyway, Jasmine the Tamilar was my very first character, Thief Mage. I have no idea what level she got to, maybe third, maybe fourth. <laughs> Characters died quick and easy in Tom's games. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is once you do like multi-classing, although if you had Thief as one of your multi-classes, you still could get levels at a fairly decent rate because thieves got levels ridiculously compared yeah. to other classes with their XP. Yeah, I don't know why, but my very like when I was initially playing D&D, it was all about the mage thief combo. I think a lot of it was I wasn't confident enough to play a mage by themselves and I didn't want to just be a thief. I didn't want to just be Bilbo Baggins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> with boobs but you know what i mean <laughs> oh my goodness so when did you start gming which i know the answer for you is pretty much right away oh yeah um i mentioned this a little bit before but yeah i was the primary dm right from the start i was the one trying to figure out what all the rules meant and how to communicate it to my friends and i started that from around the time i was 12 like i said we had maybe about a year where we played basic and then i gradually like layered in ad and d because i think everyone that played at that time i don't think there was as many people that went straight from just basic to ad and d there were a lot of people that were like these monster stat blocks almost work together we might as well use something from here you know there yeah these spells aren't that much different you know and even though they technically weren't compatible uh rule sets they looked alike and we didn't know any better so yeah i mean honestly the, the, you were a 13 year old kid you yeah. didn't know any better you're just like this is cool stuff let's do it oh yeah definitely the nuance of system design doesn't really <laughs> matter when you're four, 13 or 14 no except i did know when i started reading ad and d that there was no way in hell i was actually going to use all of the rules that i was reading because <laughs> by the time <laughs> i got to weapon speed fa uh, factors and uh, segments my eyes were glossing over <laughs> uh, the 80s. i don't even think i could explain how those worked except that in theory like daggers were supposed to be faster than something else but you still rolled initiative and somehow it interacted and i remember segments a little clearer from champions because there was at least once where i played a speedster and it was basically like instead of just basic rounds you had the, the the whole initiative segment broke broken up into different pieces and if you had the 
like if you have that high weapon speed or you're playing a character that had a high speed in champions, it meant you got to go more times <laughs> that turn. It was just kind of inherently obnoxious. Yeah. We'll probably get into this in a later episode, but there was a lot of drive in the 80s towards simulationist rules, which generally just got in the way of the game. Yeah. The more rules, the more mechanics you threw at something, the more you could say it truly modeled what you were trying to model. I don't even think there were times, like I know a lot of things would primarily be like in AD&D would be Gygax, but there would also be other people that would say, you know, it would be really cool is if we did this. And they would put it in a rule book and nobody checked to see if it worked with something that somebody else had put in that rule book. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, and when did you start jamming? <laughs> I got a very late start jamming. I, as I said, started playing my senior year of high school. So I started playing in 1986. I did not jam until 2005. Prior to that, there was, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to bring the whole gender dynamic into this too much, but there was definitely a difference being a girl slash woman playing in the hobby than there was being a guy. Mm-hmm. Not to mention just more universally. GMing was perceived as being this very prestigious, skilled thing you did. If you were a GM, that meant you knew that those rules backwards and forwards, mm-hmm. that you know you could adjudicate that game without any hesitation at all. And there were a lot of GMs who leaned into that mystique to basically reinforce their own authority over the game, which meant a lot of us that didn't get forced into GMing because there was no one else to do it, kind of like oh there's no way i could possibly jam and that was literally what i said from when i started playing to you know oh no i can't jam i don't know how to jam i I don't know the rules well enough to jam until i started playing with a new group in 2003 and they weren't having any of that bs Mm -hmm. Uh, my friend tj who that group has been i'll talk about them a little later but that group i've been playing with since 2003 and tj is very much a person who cultivates the GMs around him. And he was like, what do you mean you can't run a game? Of course you can run a game. You're a good player. (laughs) But I don't know. It's like, you can GM. I promise you, you can GM. When are you going to run a game for us? You want to play supers. I'm not going to run you supers, so you need to run us a supers game. (laughs) And that was how I got pushed into it. Mm -hmm. I'll say my first D&D game that I really put my heart and soul into was probably around 2011 when I started an Eberron campaign mm-hmm. for them. But slow start between playing and GMing there. The funny thing is, too, I think even the way rule books were written, especially like in the 80s and I think even in going into the 90s, there was a tone that was like, this is this is deadly serious stuff and you need to understand it. And this is a very important job. And, yes. And the funny thing about that is, even though that was very prevalent in most books, I went back like a couple years back. I started reading through the uh, Marvel superheroes book. That tone is so much different than everything else that came out at that time, because it's just very laid back. And it, yeah, you know, it's just kind of cracking jokes and saying, you know, Hey, if you want to see if you can lift this much, you can do this. And then they have like Spider-Man interject something talking to you, the reader of the book. And it was like, <laughs> it was so dramatically different than, you know, the, the AD and D books where it is like, you must keep accurate track of time or else you can't have a meaningful campaign and, you know, things like that. A lot of people today, they're like, well, the adversarial GM is a myth. And I'm like, it was not a myth. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> when you were talking about the older kids you got to watch play and they were talking about how to screw your players over mm-hmm. that adversarial relationship was encouraged in a lot of the way games were presented back in the day mm-hmm. now a lot of it yes a lot of it had to do with just being stupid teenagers playing games but at the same time a lot of that adversarial relationship was encouraged to the point that even today i still have my players going oh no Angela's going to screw us over and i'm like guys I'm a big old softie. <laughs> I'm not going to hurt your characters. Okay, so there is this tendency that I've seen in people that started playing either around the time I did or maybe a little earlier, where every so often you can tell that there was a GM that really hurt them at some point in time <laughs> because they will sit here and say, I'm going to do this. Show me on the doll where the DM hurt you. <laughs> but I'm going to glue this tongue depressor on this windowsill. Then I'm going to hang, I'm going to tie a hair to this part of the the, uh, the the door handle over to this. And like all of these steps like this, and I'm sitting here going, what are you trying to accomplish? Oh, you'll see. It's like, no, no, no. I want you to do something cool. I'm not going to screw you over, but I also need to know what you're doing because I don't want you to just say, well, because I did all of those things, that means that according to this rule in here, this person fell through this pit and they're in the basement now. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> this is why my, my current group outlaw shopping, uh, because in one of those very early games that we started playing together in, I think we actually, that group truly started playing together in 2004. We had a player do that in regards to shopping, <laughs> outlining every item that they were searching for, like two hours of this. In the end, it turned out they wanted to make a matching outfit for their familiar. <laughs> And and thankfully, the rest of the group was like, we are never doing that again. Who doesn't want a matching outfit for their familiar? I know. <laughs> but like, we know now you can just say, I want to find the stuff to make a matching outfit for my familiar. <laughs> and you can role play it and be done with it in 15 minutes. Yep. <laughs> anyway, what is your favorite class to play? I think you touched on this earlier. I already spoiled this one, but I love Rangers. Like I said, from the time I first read um, Lord of the Rings, I have loved Aragorn. He's like my absolute favorite character in those books. I love Viggo Mortensen in that role. Oh, what's not to love? I'm out. He, he was so good at that. But um, in the interim, I have also grown really fond of running bards and clerics. And I think that's because I like playing support characters when I'm not running. Mm-hmm. Because then I'm just there helping other people. I'm not necessarily making the big decisions. I'm just making sure that the other PCs can keep doing what they're doing, you know, so I think I kind of fall into that support position fairly well. Plus, I I like the the story of bards and clerics, you know, bards being people that learn things, maybe even if they're not useful. And, you know, clerics, I love zeroing in on what the particulars of their faith is. And maybe, if you know, are they part of some order that is, you know, some specific subset of the faith and things like that? I love things like that. What about you, Ange? What is your favorite class? So would it surprise you to know that I own and drive a Nissan Rogue? <laughs> I love playing rogues. You know, they're sneaky, they're agile, they're the DPS of the party. I mean, that <laughs> mostly comes from my, my MMO days, but still, they are the DPS <laughs> of the party. And all of my rogues usually have hearts of gold. I love playing that character that is on the wrong side of the law usually doing things that are morally nebulous, but really they're just trying to make the world a little bit of a better place. Mm. I do happily play other classes. One of my favorite 
characters that's active right now is a sorcerer, but I always have a fondness for rogues. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm not so focused that I only play rogues, but <laughs> there's usually that theme somewhere in my characters. Now, do you still know anyone from your first days in gaming? Um, unfortunately, my old gaming group kind of scattered when they went to college. One of my friends got into Shadowrun for a while while he was away, and I haven't really talked to them about a whole lot, you know, since then. <laughs> I do see, like, one of my friends and his family at the uh, the drive-in every once in a while watching movies. I got introduced to his wife and kids as that guy that knows all the stuff about comic books. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, Ange, do you know anybody from your early days? You know, as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of blurry faces from <laughs> those first days of gaming. I am still loosely in contact with Tom. He ended up moving out west and now lives in the San Francisco area. We did run into each other completely by accident at the 2014 Gen Con. I had come there with my friend Chris who it was his very first Gen Con, and he was so excited to be there, he was practically vibrating. <laughs> and we made a pact that he could go anywhere, do anything he want. I would just check in with him every day to make sure he came back to the hotel room to sleep and that he got at least one decent meal in him. <laughs> and he was telling me about these people he had met from San Francisco and cool, and they'd be hanging out, and these various things, and yada, yada, yada. And then on the Sunday of Gen Con, I'm wandering through one of the, the gaming halls that has open tables for board games and stuff. And I see Chris sitting there playing with a couple of people. And I wander over to basically give him the heads up on how we're wrap, you know, like we're all going to meet over at TGI Fridays and then hit the road after that. And as I'm sitting there talking to Chris, I realize one of the two guys he's playing a board game with is staring at me with this huge smile on his face. <laughs> and it takes me a moment for it to like, cycle through my brain and all of a sudden i'm like tom <laughs> and sure enough chris had spent most of the convention hanging out with tom and his friend <laughs> and so we got kind of reconnected back then but we're not we don't really actively hang out or talk or anything like that our, mm. our gaming styles have drifted dramatically he much more plays an old school style of game where mm. my tastes are much more modern the group I am still in contact with is my second group of gamers who um, in 1989, when I was headed off, when I was in college, um, Tom joined the Army Reserves and he was basically going to be gone for six months, which meant no gaming for six months. And I was like, I can't go six months without gaming. That's going to be awful. <laughs> and in one of my classes, somebody announced that uh, there was a fledgling gaming club starting up and they were meeting on thir Wednesdays and everyone was welcome to come. I probably won't do it justice, but it took a lot of courage for me to work up the nerve to actually go to that meeting. <laughs> and I can say that at least three of the guys that were in that gaming meeting are basically part of my friend family still today. Mm. I am the aunt to their daughters. <laughs> I am the person that introduced their daughters to D&D. &D. That is awesome. <laughs> so uh, what's your favorite RPG outside of D&D? &D? Um, this is hard because it changes over time. But if I had to narrow it down, I would say to pick three, I would say Marvel Heroic, which is a Cortex Plus game, which is unfortunately no longer published. But if you get the chance, if you see an old copy of it, get it. You don't see an old copy of it, pick up uh, the Cortex Prime rulebook and look at that because it's really neat. 
uh, Monster of the Week, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, which I absolutely love because I love like modern urban uh, fantasy monster hunting stories. Like it's a weakness of mine. I just absolutely love that genre. And Star Trek Adventures, which is Modifius's uh, 2D20 system. I, I really like the 2D20 system. What about you, Ange? So this is a totally unfair question. <laughs> I love so many games. And while D&D is definitely my comfort food game, I'm quite happily polygamous otherwise. <laughs> now, I'm a huge fan of a lot of Free Leagues games. Um, I started with Tales from the Loop. I'm going to start running Vason very soon. And I picked up most of the core books for Coriolis soon. Mm-hmm. And I'm really liking what they're doing with their games. Mm-hmm. Savage Worlds is also a comfortable favorite. Um, I ran an East Texas University campaign 2021 for a large chunk of that year. Um, And then also there are quite a few Powered by the Apocalypse games I dig. Monsters of the Week as well. I love that urban fantasy monster hunting genre. I wonder why we get along. (laughs) (laughs) Give me that Supernatural. Give me that Buffy. Mm -hmm. I'm also a huge fan of Masks. Um, and there's a bunch of other Power of the Apocalypse games that I really dig. Now, have you taken any time off from gaming in your storied history? Unfortunately, yes. Um, I missed the tail end of AD&D 2nd Edition, um, which was very tumultuous. So it was an interesting <laughs> time to be away from uh, gaming. But as TSR was sold to WotC, I was not uh, participating in the game. I was probably away for four or five years away from any kind of RPGing. And I was inspired to get back into D&D once again to bring this, you know, full circle. I was sitting in the theater watching the Fellowship of the Ring and I thought, I need to get back into D&D. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Anne? How long have your gaps in gaming been? It's kind of nebulous because it also comes down to what you consider to be gaming. My college group that, as I said, I'm still friends with most of them today, um, fell out of gaming around 1995. Busy lives, so on and so forth. And we really only had one person who would GM. And as much as I love him, he would flake out on campaigns a lot. So we would play a few sessions and then the campaign would die. And then we'd revive it again a few months later with different characters and so on and so forth. And so probably the last time we played was 95 or so. Mm -hmm. I found replacements online through mushes and the like. uh, And I didn't play another face-to-face game until 3.0 had already come out. Uh, and I had friends from EverQuest introduce me to it in, I want to say 2002, because that was really the spark that made me go, I need gaming in my life. And as much as I love my college friends, we're not going to be gaming again. Yeah, You know, it's just not going to happen. I wasn't ready to start GMing yet. They were all busy so on and so forth. And so I started looking for another group of players. I found a group in 2003 with a really, really, really bad GM. But the other players were pretty cool. And when I finally hit my threshold of tolerating really bad GM, and there's so many stories there, but the really bad GM, I stopped playing. And a couple of months later, I was contacted by the players of that game going, hey, if we weren't playing with Bill, would you be willing to game with us again? <laughs> and that's when my core group started that I still play with today. <laughs> so what did you learn from early gaming that still applies today? So early on, I learned that safety at the table is really important. We weren't specifically calling it safety at that point in time, 
but I was a jerk when I was younger and I was specifically a jerk in, in this instance that I still vividly remember because I had a friend that was afraid of spiders and I didn't know this going into the game session. But once I realized that my description of a giant spider was really bothering him, instead of backing off, I went into overdrive on the description. I got super graphic and they started talking about, you know, sounds and all sorts of things, which I won't do because we might have listeners that also have the same problem. So, <laughs> yeah, there's there a lot of encouragement of that kind of edgelord behavior in gaming back then. I laid it on thick and he ended up leaving the table because I was pushing too hard. And not only did he leave the table that day, he kept hanging out with us in general. Like he would hang out with us when we were playing video games or when we went to see movies, but he did not play D&D with us anymore. And I feel extremely bad. And that is something I hope that I keep in mind to be a lot more empathic about the other people at the table and make sure that they are having fun as well. Yeah. What did you learn about gaming in your early days? So I think, what has really stuck with me is something a little more personal. It primarily taught me that I am a social person. As an awkward, nerdy kid, I was a target of a lot of bullies. I was a big kid. I was the tallest kid in my class up until the boys hit puberty in freshman year. And I was also the perfect target for the bullies because if you poked me, I'd squawk. Basically, I was very vocal about them bothering me or responding to them. And it just usually encouraged them to keep going. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it made me very wary of anyone I wasn't already safe with. I have a friend who we were in the same class together. I want to say my sophomore year might have been my junior. But but basically, she was trying to get me to talk to her for the first half of the class. <laughs> and like I kept being like kind of pushing her off because I assumed Oh, it's just another kid who's going to make fun of me. She, she doesn't really want to know me. And it finally got to the point where she was, you know, like after she had finally kind of broken through and I got to know her, she's like, oh, my God, you were hard to get to talk to. <laughs> when my friend brought Tom to the game and he invited, I mean, like I was aware of D&D. The school had a gaming club. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go to that. I, I wasn't friends with any of the guys. <laughs> and even if all of those guys that were in that D&D club were also the target of the jocks and the popular kids, I still couldn't go to that. And <laughs> Tom inviting me into his game was like that first step in, you know, figuring out that, oh, I like this. And the thing about gaming is as somebody who is a little socially unsure, it gave me permission to be at that table. Mm -hmm gave me permission to be there and interact with those people on the same level as everyone else there, except maybe the GM. <laughs> and then when Tom wasn't able to provide gaming anymore because he was going off to the reserves, I knew I needed that in my life, which is why I worked up the courage to go to that gaming club meeting and introduce myself to strangers. <laughs> there was a Origins a few years ago where I was hanging out in the Big Bar on 2 is the large bar in um, the Hyatt that is connected to the convention center with John Arcadian. And he was like, come on, let's go mingle. I'll introduce you to some industry people. And I'm like, John, I can't mingle. And he's like, what are you talking about? You can't mingle. And I'm like, I can't go up to strangers and talk to them. And he's like, you do that every time you sit down at a table to run a game. And I'm like, that's different. I have permission to be there. Those people are agreeing to be in my presence and talk to me and game with me. And 
gaming has basically been able to teach me that I am an extroverted introvert. It's like, <laughs> I need people. I just need them in a certain format. That was, that's funny because that, that reminded me of when I was at a game hole con and I went, I was getting ready to leave on a Sunday and I saw our, our mutual friend, Eileen, and I was saying goodbye to her and I didn't notice the people she was talking to. And she was talking to Monty Cook, Shauna Germain, and um, <laughs> Jeremy Crawford. And <laughs> I, I looked up and I realized who she was talking to. And I was like, I am a huge fan of all of your work and I'm just going to walk away now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Aside from 5e, what is your favorite edition of D&D? So, like I said, I started with the 81 basic set. We moved into 80 first edition pretty quickly. But second edition always feels like my home edition. I was in on the ground floor. You know, I, you know, I got the books the second they hit stores. I understood more of the books than I did when I read first edition. There wasn't the weird, like, trying to figure out segments and things like that when I was reading them. They just clicked for me. So... AD&D second edition was like really, really comfortable for me. And what I think is funny is when I first started looking at fifth edition, I was thinking, man, this feels like a really cleaned up version of second edition. And I've heard so <laughs> many people say that about whatever edition they liked, like not, <laughs> not everyone saying it about second edition, but people say, man, this is like third edition, except it's cleaned up in all these areas. that." I <laughs> so what about you, Ange? Other than the fifth edition, what's your favorite flavor of D&D? So this one's a little hard for me. 5e has honestly held my attention longer than any previous edition. I completely get everything you're saying about second edition, but I came to despise it by the <laughs> early 90s. I just, I was frustrated with the way characters felt very pigeonholed. There wasn't a lot of flexibility in it. And, and I mean, there was more flexibility in second edition than there was in first. Mm. But at the same time, like, it would drive me nuts that you couldn't do more with, like, you still had to be a certain race with a certain class and your stats had to be a certain way. And so my college group mostly played champions, mm -hmm. which was as obnoxious as that game was. <laughs> you could still make anything you wanted. It's definitely flexible. <laughs> yeah. So I got very frustrated with second edition. It wasn't until third edition came out that I started being like, Oh, I like this. This is flexible. I can, <laughs> I could be a, a dwarf druid, mm -hmm. you know, I could be a halfling paladin, you know. In fact, the very first game I ever ran in D&D was me very specifically taking race class combinations that you're not supposed to have. Uh, like there was the halfling barbarian, the gnome <laughs> druid, the dwarf wizard, the, um, the human fighter, just because I couldn't think of anything else to do with human. <laughs> yes, the elf rogue, the half elf cleric the half-orc bard. And <laughs> it turns out that the elf was actually the father of the half-elf bard. And the half-elf the half elf and the half-orc were brothers. <laughs> anyway, it's like third edition was like, I really liked what it did to the game and changed it to make it more flexible. Mm -hmm. I did have a problem with how fiddly and bloated it got as time went on. And that time was a very quick, span mm -hmm. of time because they were releasing six books a year or something obnoxious like that i was gonna say the last year of release i'm pretty sure there were at least for maybe six months or so there was a core book that would come out and then either a forgotten realms or an eberron book that would come out like the same month yeah <laughs> now, i'm 
greatly appreciative of all those Eberron books because <laughs> I still use them all as reference mm-hmm. for my games, but it got overwhelming really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will actually give a fond shout out to fourth edition. Fourth edition didn't necessarily hold my group's attention for an extended period of time, mostly because it got, I don't want to say clunky in the higher levels, but it was a little overweighted in the higher levels. But we had a lot of fun with fourth edition. And one of my favorite characters of all time was a changeling rogue that was a fourth edition character. Mm. To answer the question more directly, I don't know (laughs) that I have a favorite. I have a lot of, I have a complicated relationship with second edition and first edition. Third edition, I'm grateful for it helping me get back into the hobby and for a lot of the things it did. And fourth edition was just fun. But fifth edition has probably got my heart. Yeah, I honestly, I, I like fifth edition more than any other edition. So, I mean, but I just have those fond memories of second edition. I will say when I was running Pathfinder, I was playing in a fourth edition. game, And it was really kind of nice to have that, you know, that contrast there for a mm-hmm. while. Um, because it was neat to be playing something that is sort of related, but doing something in a completely different way, you know, in two different games that I was in. We actually tried converting my character Z in that campaign. It was called the Ladies of Fazdell. We tried converting to Pathfinder because as we were getting higher in level, it was getting a little more cumbersome for the GM to prepare for the game. But the characters didn't have the same feel. Mm -hmm. So for the last two sessions of that campaign, um, because it was a sporadic one, we played like once every quarter or so. Mm -hmm. Um, For the last two sessions, we just kept it in fourth edition. That was where, you know, my rogue got all of her explosive DPS damage and the gnome character just felt right. She didn't feel right in Pathfinder, so on and so forth. I loved the uh, the Avenger in fourth edition. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a good way to get that same feeling other than just playing an Avenger in fourth edition, because there was something really neat about that class. Similar feel with the Invoker. I played an Invoker in a campaign for a while. And I mean, I guess you could do it with the the sorcerer that's a divine soul. Divine soul, I think, mm-hmm. is the subclass. But at the same time, the Invoker just had a special feel of this was a religious person who isn't as concerned with healing. They're there to blow things up for God. <laughs> and and the funny thing is, is what I kind of liked about the Avenger was it was a you are a, a religious warrior, but you're an assassin. You don't fight people straight up like paladins. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we apparently have very violent uh, views on how to express religion as as seen through the lens of fourth edition so (laughs) so moving into our later segment downtime research no time for rest you two get on with your downtime research we're going to look at something related to DD that we want to pass along to our listeners it might be products websites videos podcasts but it'll always be something that we think will enhance your DD experience So this time around, I am going to bring up an upcoming Kickstarter that hasn't gone live yet. And part of why I'm bringing up a Kickstarter that hasn't gone live yet is I have no idea when people are going to see this podcast. So this should give me a little bit of buffer time. The Kickstarter that I'm talking about is Uncharted Journeys, and it is a 5e supplement from Cubicle 7. It is taking the journey system that they created for Adventures in Middle Earth and like blowing it out into a tool set to be used in 
broader D&D 5e games. I really like the journey system in Adventures in Middle-Earth, but I tried using it wholesale in 5th edition, and some of the assumptions in core 5th edition are things that they didn't have to worry about in Adventures in Middle-Earth. For example, you don't have full-blown spellcasters in Adventures in Middle-Earth, so you don't have to worry about spells that might you know, make a journey simpler or that you didn't have uh, some of the backgrounds like 5e has where people can just feed the entire party automatically because of the background they took. <laughs> or, you know, the ranger automatically not getting lost. So what I really want to do is see how they address some of that in this system, because it is designed to plug into a standard 5e campaign instead of um, being designed around the redesign of 5th edition that they did for Adventures in Middle Earth. So I'm really interested to see what it turns out to look like. And I also they did so much work on Adventures in Middle Earth, and I really liked that game system. And it was kind of a bummer when everything kind of fell apart and Cubicle 7 lost the license. And it's even weirder now that apparently Free League is now going to do a fifth edition version of the One Ring. So everything, I guess, has come around full circle again, which I makes me wonder <laughs> if they're going to get the same designers on it. Who knows? <laughs> However, Uncharted Journeys by Cubicle 7 coming to Kickstarter soon. For me, I want to give a general shout out to the map makers on Patreon. Um, if you are running a D&D game in a virtual tabletop, there are a ton of maps out there to choose from. When I started pulling together maps for my Eberron campaign to run on the Shard VTT, I was finding a few, like, I was finding a few maps and they'd have a little, like, little watermark in the corner telling me who made that map. So I started looking them up and I discovered a wealth of maps <laughs> on Patreon. Now, if you can afford it, you can go ahead and back some of them to get access to their archives which is not a bad thing to do for some of these folks. But a lot of them also have a lot of free downloads. So you can go get their free downloads, see if you like what these folks are doing, and then maybe go back and back. One of my favorites is Zipiko. Basically, it's C-Z-E-P-E-K-U. It's a couple that does maps together, and they recently won an any for their cartography. There's also T-Hawks, T-E-H-O-X, uh, Limithron, L-I-M-I-T-H-R-O-N, who's the map maker I found the ship through that I'm using for my Eberron campaign Ocean Journey. Tom Kartos is another one who has a lot of great free maps. We'll have a link in the show notes wherever this show actually <laughs> lands, but we'll have those links there. I need to check out more maps for my game. I kind of throw things together based on things that I've had for a while sitting on my hard drive, so <laughs> I need to check some of them. So, Ange, do you have any final words? This was a lot of fun. Hopefully we can keep this going and, and find a home for this show. I had a lot of fun as well, and it looks like we've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. 